Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, and welcome to Day One, the podcast that spotlights Australian startups, founders, and the organizations that empower Australian entrepreneurship. We go back to the beginning to tell the story of Australia's most inspiring founders and how they built their companies. You're listening to a special interview series as part of a documentary W2D1 is producing about the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. On the episode today, we have... Hi, I'm uh, Phil Moore. I'm a partner at Main Sequence Ventures, which is uh, an Australian venture capital firm founded by Australia's National Science Agency, the CSIRO, investing in early stage technology companies with science at their core. When did you first get involved, you know, before maybe the vocabulary was even there, but when, when did you first get involved? Well. I think when I first started in the technology business, which would have been, well, even the beginning of the 90s. So at the beginning of the 90s, believe it or not, I was a theater director and I did that for most of the 90s. And um, theater direction, of course, doesn't make much money. And so I had this side hustle, which was this sort of emerging new practice of building websites on top of this mosaic browser that was starting to catch people's attention throughout the 90s. As we got to the end of the 90s, I got very busy doing this and I realized I needed to get on the train or watch it go off into the sunset. And I decided I was going to get on the train and I I moved to Sydney and a career in in technology began uh, building websites for people. I worked for a big Sydney company called Brilliant Digital Entertainment. And I wouldn't really describe that as a startup by today's standards, but it, it probably was as close as you get to a startup. Um, 
back then in that it was, you know, it was a private business um, founded by a couple of people. It had about a hundred employees and it was, it was leaning into this whole new world of digital entertainment as the company name said, but this wasn't a world of raising venture capital, um, you know, starting off in a garage, working in a, uh, co-working space, uh, building a business on Amazon Web Services off your off your laptop. This was this was a classic Sydney startup in that it was it had raised money from high net worth families that were known to the founders. And from my perspective, I was almost entirely unaware of that. I was just an employee in the company. I had a small amount of share options. And I did my job as the um, uh, VP of web development at the time. Um, then we created the website for this little company in the Netherlands called Kazar. And that company very quickly exploded because it was an alternative to a very popular piece of software at the time called Napster, which was one of the file sharing applications and that that company Napster was being sued by the entertainment industry and all the consumers moved very quickly over to Kazar and Kazar moved very quickly to Australia and before I knew it I was the chief technology officer of Kazar and Kazar really became one of the first high growth startups uh, in Australia's history in in my reading of this because it was it was an early stage internet company. Um, it was growing like the clappers. At one stage, it was eighty percent of the world's internet traffic because these are the days before YouTube and high bandwidth internet websites. And and Kazar was really how you shared videos of your party at the weekend and things like that. And that business became enormous, not by today's standards, but by stand by the by the standards of those days. You know, having millions of users on it at any one time, tens of millions of customers altogether. It was my first taste of of operating a digital business at scale, and that's where I met Mick Lubinskis, who was also working at Kazar, and we kind of we we found our mojo. Um, him on the marketing side and me on the technology side, building this massively growing company, uh, and that was that was a real roller coaster, and that all happened out of Military Road in Cremorne in Sydney. Um, no one would know you would drive past it every day, but it's just opposite the uh, the cinema in Cremorne, and millions of, of of users each day were going through that that office. And so, yeah, I think once you've had that experience, um, first of all, you know a lot. Uh, we learned so much about building businesses and technology um, and, you know, on a world stage. Uh, and we also learned about the bad things that happened because we were sued by all the big movie studios and all the record companies. Uh, and so there were lots of challenging times there as well. But we came out knowing a lot um, and feeling excited about the, the digital universe that was unfolding. And Mick and I wanted to do that again. And so now, so where are we up to now? Let's see, on the on the timeline, um, Kazar, our time at Kazar began in, in around 2000. 
uh, and we were done by about uh, 2006 or something like that. Mick and I did some consulting for various people, but we were, you know, we were hunting for a startup to join. That's what we had really enjoyed, wanted to do again. And, and from our perspective at the time, there weren't any. And, and there was a real trend at the time. I mean, Australian founders were starting companies just like Brilliant Digital. They were generally raising capital from families that are known to them. And then they were very quickly going offshore to the United States largely and, and not really uh, uh, building the, the value here in, in Australia. Atlassian was really the first company to start that trend of you know, putting, putting the roots down and starting things here. But at this stage, Atlassian, I don't think, had even been founded. And we um, you know, looked around for startups, couldn't find any, uh, and decided we'd, uh, we'd make our own. And um, uh, at the time, everyone was trying to... Oh, sorry, everyone. There were, there were a number of people in Australia trying to create Australia's version of Y Combinator, which had started recently in Silicon Valley. And Mick and I said, well, why don't we, why don't we do that? And let's not wait to raise money. Let's just get started. Let's bootstrap. Let's, let's, let's offer what we know, what we learned at Kazar to people. You offer the marketing, I'll offer the technology and we'll get people going quickly. And over time, we'll raise a little bit of money and we can start investing in companies like Y Combinator does. And that's when the whole Polonizer things started and 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 really it was around that time that the startup ecosystem that we know today really started to get into its stride what year would you say that was 2010 so that would have been 2008 just side note i've got a few side notes here actually but one i'm curious about the name polonizer how did you come up with that (laughs) well when we finished at kazar I mean, one of the things I was doing was just thinking of lots of different ideas for companies to start. Back then, you know, you could have a stab at grabbing domain names and get interesting ones. So I had this little list of actually quite a big list of <laughs> domain names. And Mick and I sort of shortlisted off that and we came up with some other ones as well. I mean, I remember one of the one of the one of the alternative names was Red Kangaroo or something, uh, which is kind of a bit, I think Qantas would have sued us if that's what we <laughs> done. But it was, um, but we didn't go that way. I think I, I, but I, I did have the domain name for polonizer.com. And I remember just in the years leading up to that, if I remember correctly, I was doing a whole bunch of work with Chris Saad up in Brisbane at the time who had this whole idea of data portability, which, um, of course, is, you know, um, yeah, data portability is is part of the the backbone of the internet these days and becoming increasingly so with Web3 and so forth. But but back then it was really a one-way internet and Chris started talking about this idea of what if we could sort of encapsulate data into into a, a sort of formal markup so that it can be things like addresses and biographies and 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 things like that could be embedded into websites and be portable across the the internet and um, 
And I started thinking of business ideas around that. And I sort of got this whole idea of bees pollinating things and started coming up with a whole bunch of random words around that. And pollinizer was one of them. And we thought, well, that could work because, you know, we're going to, we're going to connect people. We're going to create a, a kind of, you know, a, a froth of creativity and, and technical accomplishment and, um, Polonizer kind of describes it. So let's do that. And that's that's where it came from. And before we keep moving forward through the timeline, I want to go back to your time in theatre quickly with a side note here. What, what was the biggest lesson you think you took from, you know, teaching theatre that you brought across into the tech world? I'd, I'd say actually everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I'd, I'd, say, I'd say every startup entrepreneur should go to drama school and and then and then try and run a theatre company for ten years, and by the time you've done that, it's um, you've learned everything that you need to know. And I'll I'll sort of I'll break that down briefly. If in theatre, first of all, you can't pay people with money. Some money comes in from ticket sales and Australia Council grants and things like that, but it's very very little. I think in my final year in theatre. I, as the head of the company, had I had the top tier ANSET frequent flyer status, but my taxable income was $7,000. <laughs> so that kind of gives you an idea. And so but we had a, a team of people, a, a theatre company, who, were, who had worked consistently together for about 10 years and had done it under those conditions. So what that means is you have to convince people to join you, join the mission, if you like, without money being a reason to do that. You have to gather around an idea and everyone has to be excited about making that idea. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the process of putting a play on is usually a process in which you have very little in the way of resources and you have uh a year to kind of think about it and put it together. But at the beginning of that year, you have to make all the advertising collateral that goes in the arts festival programs and things like that. So putting those two things together, what you've got is you've got a ragtag bunch of people, practically no resources, a big idea that's got a whole bunch of people excited you then describe that idea, you describe what you think you can build over the next year and you write about it and you make some imagery about it. That goes, that gets published and a year later you've got to make that real and you've got no alternative but to do that because a lot is resting on it, um, including everyone's reputation, which you know I've learned is a very important currency in startups as well. And so this is a this is a kind of a set of skills. The same skills that allow you to do that allows you to actually have the confidence to have an idea which isn't a play now. It's actually it's a it's a company. It's it's another entity which is going to create impact in a different way. But the process is actually just the same. So it gives you the the strength. It gives you the the ways of working with people and having empathy for the for their struggle during a process and it teaches you how to tell a story as your first product and then 
materialize that product and bring it to life. And that's that's the skill I think that you the powerfully learn in theater that's so valuable for startups. Can you tell me about the concept or, or thinking behind your title that you at, at Polonizer Startup Scientist and, and bringing uh, what did, was it? What did you guys call it? Um, bringing well, we we had this. Uh, the journey of that was well, it's quite prophetic to where I've ended up today, I guess. But um, the the journey through Polonizer was began began at the beginning with us really just intuitively doing what we do without really knowing what we were doing, if that makes sense. So we had an instinct about what to do, and we just did that. We interacted with people, we helped them, we rolled up our sleeves and got involved. And then as we scaled the team, we realized that we needed to actually stand outside of ourselves and understand what it was we were doing. And the way we talked about it at the time is we needed to wrap the science around the art, right? It's not just intuitively showing up and letting the magic happen. You actually have to try and encode that and you have to sort of find the recurring patterns and the ways of measuring progress. And at the time as well, the whole lean startup idea was emerging, which we became very proficient at and it became very helpful in our work. And at the heart of that is this whole idea of a sort of scientific method, if you like, to creating a company. So having a hypothesis about what's valuable or what's going to work, testing it with a consumer or customer, knowing what success looks like in the in what you measure, and then moving forward as a company around that. So we sort of started describing what we were doing as startup science and um and then we started <laughs> giving each other names around that idea. So I was chief startup scientist, I think, at the time. But it, as it turned out, it was a very powerful way of working. We designed a number of accelerator programs and startup programs around that, not just our own. Um, the, the last one being the CSIRO's National Science Accelerator on. And, you know, a lot of that work... Um, still exists today. You know, you see it in in the sort of in the workbooks and uh, and the playbooks that people give out in accelerator programs and things. And we certainly didn't invent it all. A lot of it was a a brilliant sort of riff that was happening across what was then a you know it still is a global ecosystem of people just rabidly learning from each other. And then building upon each ideas and finding other ways to do it, but that was that was what we were calling startup science at the time. Looking at the whole time timeline of the Australian startup ecosystem and how, how it's grown, why do you think people look at Polonizer as such an important part of, of that that timeline? Well, I I think it's because nothing existed beforehand that I know of. Um, I mean, it was just a crazy idea to start it. It was very hard. And I will say it never had a business model <laughs> that worked. Uh, I mean, it was, it was a love project for for the nine years that it existed. And um, uh, But it was really the first entity of its kind that was helping other people make startups. And of course, our ecosystem today is is abundant with those. Um, and it was, it, you know, people often ask me, 
you know, why didn't you carry on with Polonizer? And I think that the reason I, that I consistently give is that I think it served its purpose. And I often describe it as a, a booster rocket on Saturn V or on a, you know, on a, a SpaceX rocket. It's a, it, it's required. It was required. It was at one of the required pieces to get our ecosystem into orbit. But once the ecosystem was in orbit with its own momentum, it wasn't needed anymore. It, it could fall back to Earth. And and one way of describing Polonizer sort of less um, romantically is it was a general purpose uh, incubator that helped all kinds of people wanting to start all kinds of companies. And it 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 worked with them with a, a certain methodology, this sort of startup science approach, consistent way of bringing people together and working. But again, it was general purpose. It wasn't helping AI startups, or it wasn't helping people with disabilities, or it wasn't doing something particular for the Melbourne ecosystem. It was a general purpose for everyone in Australia that was crazy enough to want to start a startup at a time when there was no venture capital and practically no other support. But now there's a lot and um, and we don't need a polonizer anymore. I think there's so much of what the Generation One accelerators and incubators did is now table stakes and baked into what the army of people who are creating companies today just just know. It's it's part of our vernacular and our our, our core skill set of as Australian entrepreneurs today. I know there's you know, a lot happened between polonizer. I, I think a lot happened. That we're going to skip over between polonizer and, and main sequence but why why did you start main sequence and where did that come from oh sorry not start why did you start main sequence no but I, well i was a i was a founding partner it, it was very fortunate actually so we definitely we chose to end polonizer um because it was the right thing to do not because something else was coming up and i can you know i can tell you some some stories around that but I was doing, um, at the time, Polonizer's last customer, if you like, was the CSIRO. And it was the job of designing and running the On Accelerator program. And that's where we applied what we had learned over the last like, nine years to a group of people who were very inexperienced with entrepreneurship, which was the nation's scientists, and and realized there was just phenomenal value. It was just a huge unlock. I mean, it's those it's that great feeling that you have when when you're working in a certain space and you do what you do and you just kind of see the magic happen. When I remember when we did the first on accelerator workshop, there were about a hundred people in the room. And not only did I not understand what they were trying to communicate. But I think the other people in the other scientists in the room didn't really understand it because they were still operating as scientists, describing precisely as a scientist to peers in that area how their innovation works, as opposed to how entrepreneurs sort of tell their story and help people understand, you know, what could happen um, in a world that had this startup in it. You know, by the time we'd finished that program, there was just an incredible capability that sort of 
wrapped around these incredible inventions, a way of describing those inventions to people, a way of thinking about raising capital, a way of building a business with people around it and a way of being in essence entrepreneurial. And so that was a that was a wonderful feeling. But I thought, you know, when we ended Polonizer, that that would also end as well. And, you know, I was literally out of Polonizer looking for a job. And um and actually I'll, t- I'll tell you the story about how it ended, because I think that's interesting because we we ended Polonizer with two experiments. So we ran startup science on our own company. We did it very openly with the whole team. And we ran two experiments. One was at the time uh, Qantas was um, putting out to tender the Avro Accelerator program, which it ran for a few years. And the team had designed what they wanted to do with that terrifically well. And we were excited by that. And we said to ourselves, if we bid for that deal and we get it and we do it high integrity, we design the perfect program which we have a high conviction it's going to work you know then that's a that's a past experiment that's a win and that's a reason to carry on with pollinizer so we designed an amazing program we spent months on it with everything that we knew we costed it at what it costs to do it properly as a proper business and we put that in to the Qantas team the other thing we did, and I'll tell you what happened in a minute. Then the other thing that we did was we were running the On Accelerator program for CSIRO. A lot, all the universities started reaching out to us saying, can you do something similar for us as well? And and we thought, well, that's interesting. So we, how about this for an experiment? We We go to CSIRO with this idea that together we build a business to roll this out at scale uh, across the whole country. Um, and we went to David Burt, who was running uh, on Accelerator at the time. He's now um, Director of Entrepreneurship at UNSW. And um, and I said, so what do you think? How about, how about we, we basically go into business together and do this? And again, I thought that was, a, that was a win. That would be proof that there was a market that was ready to um, properly sustain a pollinizer. And so here's what happened. In in the case of David, very openly and for all the right reasons, he said, I have a strong belief that all this material that's made needs to be free. It shouldn't be part of a business. And we should just give it out so that all researchers are, are using it and benefiting from it and changing what they do for the better. And, you know, of course, I was a bit grumpy about that at the time, but actually, you know, he's right. Uh, that the impact of, of doing that is is very powerful, but it was a it was a failed experiment in terms of pollinizers, <laughs> um, uh, uh, proof of life, if you like. And then on the Qantas deal, we didn't get the deal because we were too expensive. And again, you know, it was it, there's, there's no sort of um, judgment on Qantas's decision there in any way. It's just that that's what it cost. That's what it would have cost us to deliver such a program. So just wasn't going to work. So we realized that there was no sustainable business model. Ironically, you know, that the startup science that we'd espoused to everybody was how to find as rapidly as possible a sustainable, repeatable business model. And 
after nine years, we had failed to do that ourselves. We'd, 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 we had a business model that, that functioned, uh, kept the lights on, but it was certainly not going to grow and there was no make money while you sleep business there. So, so we moved on. So that, that was all finished. And then as luck for me would have it, um, Bill Barty, who I knew well, had been recently tasked with, with forming uh, the venture capital fund in CSIRO that later became known as Main Sequence. And Bill asked me to come along and, and join the gang. You know, just felt like the luckiest person in the world because um, everything in my life up to that point had led me to that door. And uh, here I am today. Could you have done anything differently if, before you even began Polynizer? Like, have you ever thought back and thought about what could we have done differently? Uh, to make Polynizer successful or? Yeah. Well, we tried so many business models. I mean, it's a problem, frankly, that endures today. The people that are the service workers, if you like, of the startup ecosystem, I think are unvalued in the in the system. They find themselves going from gig to gig, you know, helping, for example, a big company start its startup program, which lasts for about three years, and then the whole thing collapses and they're out of a job or they have to become a scrum master or something, you know, more justifiable in a software company or something. You know, big programs like ON happen, but ON was a five-year government-funded program, which ended after five years. And there was just such an amazing army, frankly, of incredibly talented startup coaches, you might call them, who were all suddenly out of work. And I think the problem there is that it's a very, it's it's a job which takes a long time to really get an instinct for. And each time these systems collapse, these people you know, are out of work and we lose some of them or they lose a little bit more hope and and I think that's disappointing. I think that's one of the things, you know, I hope will get right over time. One of the good things that's happening is many of us, I suppose I could say, are ending up in venture capital. And that is a model that works. You know, now we're in a world of capital. There's enough capital to get enough management fees to do the work we do. And it all works in a sustainable way uh, in a reasonable sized venture capital firm. And I think that's also good because we've all got skin in the game and we're all trying to do the same thing, which is making tremendously valuable companies. When you don't have that kind of business model, you do things like Polynizer needed to do, which is, so for example, at the beginning of Polynizer, we we had two concurrent business models. We worked as a software agency and we charged clients professional rates. So for example, we worked on the BBC iPlayer platform. And in parallel to that, we helped startups and that we did that for a very low rate, sometimes free and for equity in the, in the company. And we realized that didn't work because we were basically doing a bad job at both. You know, we were billing the BBC like they were a startup and doing all this work for free because we cared a lot, but that wasn't making us enough money. And for the startups, we we're saying, Hey, it's Wednesday and that's not your day because we're on the BBC today, so we can't work for you. So, which of course is is just no good for a startup. You have to do everything you can every day. And, and so we tipped into, that was the first time we actually 
raised some money into Pollenizer, which was a very small amount. I think the first amount we raised was $500,000. And we used that to, to fund our first generation of companies. But frankly, there was a, a little bit, it wasn't a perfect business model because we were having to use some of that money to sort of pass back to Pollenizer and pay some of the teams um, instead of having to hire those people directly into the company. Um, so it was that kind of startup studio model. But you've got a kind of, you know, whether you like it or not, you have a, a a conflict then because you're on one hand an owner of the company trying to give it as much runway as possible, as much chance of success. And on the other hand, you know, that company is paying for some of your team with your other hat on. And it becomes very difficult. And we can see these, you can see these business models happening across a number of different organizations that rose out of the startup ecosystem. But the summary of it is it's very, very hard to make money. Startups are, are not great customers because they don't have much in the way of funds and they need to work at a breakneck pace. And um, they're generally not great for, for, for services businesses. So um, yeah, it was always a struggle, but very, worthwhile doing and i think we're seeing business models emerge now which are a little bit more sustainable what are some of the biggest gaps you see still in the australian startup ecosystem today i'll begin my answer to that question with the observation that one benefit i have is that I started very deliberately building an ecosystem with other people in 2008. When we started that journey, there were no accelerators, no incubators, no angel investors. The venture capital pool of the country, I think was about, was smaller than the main sequence venture fund today. And if we look at what we have today, it is phenomenal. I mean, I think there is a entrepreneurial playbook that so many people understand and have a basic skill set in. You know, we start teaching it in schools now. Universities have very sophisticated, tiered, textured startup programs with all sorts of services which are offered. Um, the co-working centers, the startup centers that exist uh, the extent to which big companies actually know what to do with startups now, um, I think is, you know, is, is also valuable government knowing what to do with things, uh, having things like R&D tax concessions. It's an amazing time to be starting a company and, uh, and it's hugely supported. Um, and, you know, I think that the startup ecosystem, uh, if it has a weakness, it doesn't celebrate itself enough and it complains a lot. Um, and, you know, I think the ecosystem that we've created together with thousands of people is incredibly productive and it's exponentially getting better every day. And so most of the things that, you know, we don't have, which we'd like to have, I think will come with time as the layers of the jungle you know start to get laid out and the ecosystem can grow out of those different layers i think what you know one of the areas that i'm spending a lot of time on at the moment is building out the connective tissue between 
parts of the innovation system which are too siloed or have been too siloed historically. When startups and organizations and people start working together and they do that prolifically, great things happen and we become greater than the sum of our parts. One of the areas I'm working in today is in the world of quantum computing. Now you could you can pretty much draw a direct parallel back to the early days of Silicon Valley when companies like Hewlett Packard were making calculators and look at what we have in Australia today in terms of quantum technology. Now for what one reason or another, but a lot of it just around the people, we have an extremely world-class quantum technology talent base here in Australia. You know, 20 years ago, uh, a professor came to UNSW and started talking to people about this crazy theory of quantum physics. And people have gathered around that, that person initially and then that group and then different universities pick it up. And we have, you know, one of the top five talent communities building quantum technology today in Australia but to my point, it's siloed, or at least it has been siloed. There's a lot happening to make that better, but it takes time. But it's been siloed inside university labs. There's been very little going on in the entrepreneurial community. There's been very little going on in the large enterprises and companies that can become customers of these quantum technology businesses. And I think what we're looking at now is the possibility of a quantum technology revolution rising out of Australia in the same way that that digital computers rose out of Silicon Valley. And um, that's only going to happen if we prolifically communicate, build bridges, smash down the silo walls at every opportunity. Yeah, we make our habit telling everyone about what we're doing. We still have a little bit in Australia of people keeping it a secret, wanting it to be proprietary. You know, I still get people as an investor wanting me to sign an NDA before they've even told me any details about their company. And it's, it's you know, in my mind, it's the wrong posture, which doesn't lead to success. The companies that are successful that I've observed have been companies that are just telling everybody about what they're doing and getting them excited and looking for every opportunity to hire the great people, work with the great partners, get investment from the the right investors. It's just a silo smashing bridge building you know, requirement, which we're still not as good at as we need to be, but we're getting better. This is the advice question. That, that I ask everybody, um, if a brand new founder came to you tomorrow, what one thing would you tell them to help them not fail? I would tell them to uh, be very, very clear about what their story is. And that sounds quite shallow, I know. It's not a reflection on the need for founders to you know, tell a fib or weave a tale about their company. It's more a reflection on too many great companies are invisible to the people that can help them, be they investors, customers, people that might work for them, because the founders are failing to communicate why that's valuable to those people. 
And I find that's a, a skill and a habit which is very powerful when it happens from the very first day. And you can probably see the connection here back to my my theatre days and how I've arrived at this. But even even if you haven't got anything to show yet, even if you've got two years of building to do, even if you've got 18 months in the lab to prove what you're trying to get done, there is a story you can tell about what you intend to do as a founder. And as soon as you start making that statement and you start having that conversation and you start engaging with people about what they think about that idea, the idea becomes stronger, the company becomes richer, more people want to help you and the world comes to you rather than the founder needing to feel like they've got to do the big sell and um, and push hard to actually get people to support this company. And I find if that happens from the very first day, everything from that moment becomes easier. So as you know, what I'm trying to do here is tell the whole story of the Australian startup ecosystem. We want people from all corners of the ecosystem to hear this story, founders, investors, academics, policymakers. With that in mind, this last question isn't really a question. It's just a, I want to give you a few minutes to like, what do these people need to hear? Yeah, I, I think what we've unlocked in our people is an incredible power to make the world better. And what is happening in the world right now is that power is starting to become synchronized with global capital markets being able to fuel this and with massive problems on planet Earth that we need to solve. And those problems can be solved, I believe, with the conviction of an entrepreneur and the inventiveness and creativity of the research community, industry, government. And we've started to understand how we can mobilize ourselves. And we've really put that to the test during COVID, especially last year. It was fantastic just seeing how when the moment comes, people do what they need to do to push the boat out, do extraordinary things and fix problems in a dramatic way. I feel like that is happening massively now on a global stage and certainly here in Australia. It's, it's a very important time in history that we're ready for as an ecosystem. And I think we've just got to get our heads down, build companies, fix problems, um, and take Australia to the world with solutions to the problems that it has. And now's the time. I hope you enjoyed that interview. More interviews are on the way. Follow the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Stay tuned for more interviews with many, many more amazing people from the Australian startup ecosystem. Thanks for listening and see you next time.